0: You're listening to the Creekside Church Message Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this message from Pastor Terry Riley, which is from our sermon series, The Beatitudes, Jesus' Talk on the Hill. For more information, please visit our website at www.creekside.org. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. We've been working our way through Jesus' famous sermon on the mount. We're calling it the Talk on the Big Hill because they really didn't have many big, big mountains there, I don't think. Uh, But uh, we've really considered this and understand this this as one of the greatest ethical teachings in the world, and it was by Jesus. But Jesus wasn't just giving us new ethics. He was calling us to a new relationship, a relationship that is transformational, that as you walk with Jesus, guess what? If you're really walking with him, you're gonna change, you're gonna grow. There's gonna be things that look different about your life. It's possible to spend years in the church without ever changing your attitudes and even your actions. But the Bible calls us, friends, to transformation, where you're not staying the same. uh, You're not living with the same issues and the same patterns, but you're growing and becoming and beginning to look more like Jesus. It's a belief that leads to different patterns of behavior. And that's really what Jesus is talking about through this whole Sermon on the Mount. Now, while Jesus comes to change and to transform our sinful behaviors, uh, it always starts inwardly, not outwardly. Now, as humans, we have a tendency to start outwardly, which isn't always bad. I'm not saying that's wrong, but a lot of times we can fool ourselves by thinking if we change this outward action, then everything's really getting better, but that's not necessarily true. That's called sometimes simply image management. God says, no, no, I want to change you from the heart. That's why you see a lot of times people go and they go and they, they do well for a while Uh, but then it really doesn't change and they default back to some of these other prior happenings in their life and sinful patterns or bad habits. It's because they focused on image management. Jesus' first movement in our lives is not to make bad people good, but it's to make dead people spiritually alive because it's out of that that he begins to transform And to change us. And that's really what the focus is on this Talk on the Hill series that we're doing. That Jesus comes to change our lives, to transform and to conform us into the image of his son. And today we're going to look at a thing called what I believe Jesus' deadly virtue. This is really deadly to our lives in so many ways. It probably makes some of you mad today. That's all right. Sometimes it's good. But look at Matthew chapter seven. We're gonna start in verse one. Matthew chapter seven, verse one. It says this, do not judge so that you won't be judged. For you will be judged with the same standard with which you judge others, and you will be measured by the same measure you use. Why do you then look at the splinter in your brother or sister's eye, uh, but you don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? You know, Jesus, a lot of times people forget that he's pretty funny. He has a great sense of humor. He likes to use hyperbole. And here's a great example of it. Or, how can you say to your brother, Let me take the splinter out of your eye and look, there's a beam of wood in your own eye? Hypocrite. Now, first, take the beam of wood out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. Now, don't give what is holy to dogs or toss your pearls before pigs, or they will trample them under their feet. Turn and tear you to pieces. Now, that verse six, this is interesting. What's I want to say first thing is Christ followers, you know, we're called to make judgments, but not to be judgmental, okay? Don't judge so that you will not be judged for how you will be judged by the same standard to which you judge others, and you will be measured by the same measure you use. Do not judge, but we all do it, don't we? We do it in matters that are big and small. We do it at work. We do it at church. We do it uh, by making unfair evaluations of each other and watching other people. Oftentimes, those judgments are based on perceptions, incomplete information, misunderstanding that ultimately leads to an unfair evaluation of the people around us. I love what one writer said. He said, most of us are umpires at heart. We like to call balls and strikes on everyone else. (laughs) and if you understand baseball parlance, you know what that is. You're the umpire. You're the arbiter. You're making the decision. You're calling this is a ball. This is a strike. On a personal level, that means you're calling people out for things. We like to do that, but Jesus throughout this Sermon on the Mount, he's calling out the Pharisees and the religious leaders of his day on their hypocrisy, their image management and their judgmental ways. And and I think we've kind of underscored that for a number of weeks that ultimately that's what he's teaching us not to do. Don't live this way. Live open, live true. Because that's the best way to live. It's the Jesus way to live. So the question I'm sure some of you are asking then, well, if, if this is true, is Jesus teaching us as his followers, never to to trick or to judge things? Absolutely not. This passage has created a little bit of difficulty in translation because it seems like Jesus just tells you to do one thing, don't judge. And then he puts us in a position where he says, don't cast your pearls before swines or give that which is holy to dogs. Swines and dogs were considered people in that day that were, they weren't just people away or far from God. They were people that were opposed to God. And so they took some of these, the worst Jewish things because their dogs a lot of times weren't like our little Fifi and Pifo and the ones that you know, we take care of and you know, do everything for. These were like little scroungy mutts that just ran around the town. And so these were, they, they, these were kind of derisive terms, swine and dogs and pigs. And so he's, he, he's saying here, don't, don't cast your pearls. Don't cast the things of God before these people that are opposed to him because they're just going to reject <laughs> them more. Be discerning. So get that. See, so what, in, in five verses, he says, don't judge. And then he turns around in verse 6, and he says, well, go ahead and judge. You got to determine. So here's the point. There are times that we judge, we make judgments. Jesus isn't saying, uh, as one scholar believed, that he was speaking against any human courts of law. Uh, That's not true because if you look at the scriptures in Romans 13, it talks about how God has instituted governing authorities in our world, in our communities. So he's not saying, he's not putting down human courts of law. He's not saying that we suspend our critical faculties and and pretend to not notice or wink at sins and things that are wrong and evil that hurts other people and not judge that, not call it out, not call it what it is, especially in a community like a church. No, we get to speak with grace and truth. John chapter one, that's what it says Jesus did. It says he came in grace and truth. Three times in the first chapter of John, it says that Jesus spoke, came with grace and with truth. But we face things, we deal with things, we call things as they should be. Galatians 6, 1, Paul writes and he says, brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit. Watching out for yourselves so that you may also not be tempted. It's almost this sense of don't be careful how you do it, do it gently because you know something you could be there. None of us is immune from any of the things that anybody else faces. He's not saying that we don't discern between truth and error, good and evil. Life relationships. The Bible requires this. We we see Jesus who judged the Pharisees very strongly, very harshly in Matthew chapter twenty three. Let me see. What did he say? Something about called them snakes, whitewashed tombs. You're dead on the inside. You got dead bones on the inside, but you look good on the outside. Jesus is not happy with hypocrisy. It's probably the thing that he landed on and lambasted the most. Uh, Commentator William McDonald, he he noted situations that require some sort of judgment from the scriptures. First of all, flagrant sin in the church, Matthew 18, 15 through 17, 1 Corinthians 5. Settling disputes between believers, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 8, recognizing a, a person's qualifications for leaders. 1 Timothy chapter three, Titus chapter two. Then it isn't, excuse me, Titus chapter one. It isn't just that we put people in leadership, but there's there's these qualifications. They're not so much to disqualify as they are to qualify them. Uh, discern the followers who need, uh, Christ followers who need special care and help. 1 Thessalonians 5.14. Test doctrinal teaching, Matthew chapter 5, which we'll talk about in a couple of weeks. Uh, Excuse me, Matthew chapter 7, verse 15 through 20, Acts 17, 11. There's a lot of things, loved ones, that the scripture says you need to test, you need to check, you need to evaluate, you need to critique. But there's difficulty in where to draw the line. And it's always been difficult. And there's two extremes that usually we face in the church Here's one extreme. Hey, man, you know, I'm not going to judge them. I know they're doing wrong. I know they're in sin, but it's not my place to speak into their life. I mean, who am I? Look at me. Galatians 6 1 You who are spiritual. See, we, we we judge or we make decisions and we discern things to bring identification of the issue so that people could be led to restoration, not condemnation. So we have a responsibility to speak into, to lean into, to step into people's lives. But there's a lot of us. and Maybe it's because there's so many things in our lives that seem to be out of line. We feel like we have no room. Well, that's why it's so important that we grow, not so that we can put people in their place or tell them where they're wrong, but so that we can be these loving people that can speak into their life and help them grow in the things of Jesus Christ. But there's the one extreme that's totally hands-off, and then there's the other extreme extreme where someone becomes a sin sniffer, you know? (laughs) Have you ever been around people like that? Everywhere they go, man, they're looking for people's failures, Oh, you know what you said? Do you know what you did? I didn't even know I did that. So you get these two extremes. And, and most of us lean into uh, maybe not fully, but one side or the other. Here's what's helped me is judgments. I have to make judgments all the time. So do you. It's a daily activity. All we do, and we we do this in determining things with our kids, what they can do, who they can play with, who they can run with. We do it in hiring employees. We say, yes, I believe that this person has better character or better competency or better qualities to be able to work for me. There's decisions that we just make daily about life that usually need to be made. It's healthy because we're being discerning. But then there's judgmental. We have to make judgments daily, every one of us in this room. But then there's judgmental. It's an attitude that elevates you and diminishes another. It's where you become a spiritual detective. It's where you begin to look around and you say, oh, they're not very spiritual because, boy, they blew it here or they do this or they don't do that. And that's an attitude, and it becomes a spirit about a person where they become kind of God's watchdog. There's a word, censorious. Um, it means to be marked by or given to censure. It means you're severely critical of others. It comes from Roman times when certain magistrates were called censors. They were appointed to count people and get this to supervise public morals. It was a great honor to be chosen or to be named the censor. It meant you were a cut above the others. So, like if you would have walked in this morning and you would have been a magistrate who was a censor, people would go, Oh wow, they're good. You know, it's kind of like you kind of walk in and go, look at me, you know. It's, it's it's sad, but that's what they did. Over time, the position became highly coveted. They even came to the place where people wanted it so badly that as everything kind of devalues, they begin to auction off these positions to the highest bidder. Again, image management, want to look good. Uh, this concept uh, seems to have lapsed over and become part of the church. We've never gotten rid of it, censoriousness. Does this kind of stuff sound anything like today? Okay, we don't have people walking around with the title magistrate censors, do we? But there's different language, different applications. Politically. if you mask up, if you don't mask up. Get a vaccination, don't get a vaccination. Do you buy into or not buy into all of Black Lives Matter agenda? Do you stand for or stand against border immigration? See, we can't even dialogue those things anymore. We can't dialogue them in church, we can't dialogue them in our culture, in our community, in our society. Why? Because everybody's a censor right now. Everybody's right. How many of us have to be quiet because we don't want to have somebody get on our case or tell us where we're to get off because they're right and we're wrong because maybe we stand or believe or hold fast to one of those positions? Our culture now has its own censure. The church now has its own censure. It's not appointed, but everybody is now their own supervisor of public morals and beliefs. If you disagree, what will we do? We will counsel you. I know I'm meddling, but here, this is important because this is what our culture is becoming. Spiritually, religiously, In the church, in Jesus' time, through history, in to today. One of the great guys that I've, I've always enjoyed reading uh, until recently, a spiritual giant, his name is John Calvin. He was a highly influential leader in the Protestant Reformation. In later years, he became kind of a censor in his own right after fighting against that kind of thing earlier in his ministry. He began to be so right that it had to be his way. In his latter years, uh, in 1553, I just learned this this week. I took church history, never knew this. In 1553, he came to a confrontation with a man named Michael Savitas, who was an incredibly brilliant mind. But he deviated from the doctrine of the Trinity, which is really important, and his deviation was pretty big. But the the, the doctrine of the Trinity is really important. And I can understand why he had some troubles with Servetus. So John Calvin took it upon himself, because he was this great theologian, uh, to correspond with him. He broke it off when he saw that Servetus would not turn and agree with him and go his direction. So what happens to him? Well, the Catholics and the Calvinists kind of had this fight to see who would be able to condemn Servetus first. And condemning meant burning him at the stake. The Calvinists won. But there was another council involved. It was interesting stuff. So he's getting ready to be burned at the stake in Geneva. Calvin goes out and he says, let's... I don't know his actual words, but let's just say, let's show him some mercy. Let's just run him through with a sword. (laughs) The council said, no, we're going to burn him as a heretic. He died as a heretic burned. Can I just tell you that today I've been in the church, I've been in ministry 40 years this month. I've never seen such vitriol. I've never seen so much judgmentalism of other Christians and leaders as I see today. Vocal about it, attacking about it, aggressive about it, dogmatic about it. Hear me, don't, and, because this is, don't evaluate me on this point, but I, I mean, on this one, I'm gonna tell you to make sure you understand, doctrine is incredibly important. Solid doctrine, sound doctrine leads to sound beliefs, which leads to sound behavior and sound living, okay? Does everybody hear what I'm saying? But there are so many doctrine watchdogs out there that they believe their doctrine is the only way and it's the only one that's right, I'm not going to name names. I'm not going to name groups. But this is what shocked me this week. The group that leans heavily, most heavily into Calvin's uh, teachings and doctrines are the very ones that I believe in our day are the most vitriol. Are the most we're right and you're wrong. And if you don't believe what we believe, you're wrong. And they almost go as far as to say, at best, you, you're, you're in sin. At worst, you're a heretic. Now, here's the point, because there's, there's a couple of doctrines that, that Calvinism has been involved in for 500 years that he set up 500 years ago, and they have been debated for 500 years in Christendom by much more brilliant people than any of us in this room when it comes to theology. And you know what? They still have disagreements. And you know what? Those disagreements will not have any bearing on heaven or hell for most people. But if you don't believe what they believe, and this isn't just my assessment, I've talked to a number of people that have relationships with some of these people. And we started started comparing notes with people and you find out these people are aggressive, they're dogmatic, and they get in your face. And if you don't agree with them, you get canceled or you get condemned. Oh no, they're not gonna burn us at the stake, but they'll burn the relationship. Now, they're not going to run us through with the sword, but their words will act, as Proverbs says, like a thrashing sword that cuts and maims. Now, the Greek word Jesus uses here about judge uh, judges kreno and uh, the the greek word is kreno and it simply means to judge to the place of condemnation it's like somebody that's just in your face condemning and dropping a gavel on you you're wrong and this is right loved ones we have to we need to we want to traffic in truth and good doctrine There is heresy that needs to be confronted. There is doctrines that are a little bit off, that need to be doctrined, that need to be changed and challenged. But there's also a lot of things that have been going on for hundreds of years that are not settled by, like I say, greater minds than us. And we're not here to condemn, we're not here to judge. Jesus says that by your own measure of judgment, that's how you will be judged. Well, what do you think of that? See, he's not talking here about how Jesus is gonna judge us. Our sins, when we respond to Jesus Christ, our sins and our failures have been judged by Christ on the cross. Colossians chapter two, it says that we have been Our debt has been paid by what Jesus did on the cross. Can I tell you where this judgment's gonna come from? It's gonna come from the people around us. The way we judge others is what's gonna come back to us. And Jesus is saying, we're not to condemn. Don't be condemners. We are to discriminate, but condemnation is something that's left to God as the final judge. Secondly, Christ followers, we're not to be hypocrites. We've already talked about this in a couple of different scenarios. We're not into image management. Why do you knock or why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eyes but you don't notice the beam or the wood that's in your eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the splinter out of your eye and look, there's a beam of wood in your eye, hypocrite. Now, if I see some, something someone is doing and I say, oh, that's so terrible, oh, that's so wrong, that's so evil. See, we acknowledge that we know what good is, what bad is, what wrong is, what evil is. So if I'm doing that or if I'm doing shades of that or parts of that in different ways, different applications, I'm simply acknowledging that I know what is right and that what I'm doing is wrong. It seems that Jesus is saying here that he, he talks about this beam and this splinter. And again, this hyperbole, does, you know, doesn't, don't miss this, what he's saying, because it's kind of easy to gloss over it. But he's saying, you know something, you that are judgmental, you're not even gonna be able to see this, but I gotta, I'll show you. This is like a splinter. See? Can you see it? He says, you know what? You're, you're looking at people, and you're trying to get that splinter out of their eye when you're like this. You know? it's, like, I mean, it's, it's absurd, isn't it? It's so, it's, it just cracks me up when I read that. But that's Jesus. You know? he, he's using this to say that's how bad it is. You're over here, you got this one good eye and you're trying to point out this one little thing. But you know, you don't even see that big old beam that's coming out your other eye. (laughs) Hear me, loved ones, I say this with great pastoral love. That's kind of how we roll so often. You remember when Nathan, uh, David has committed adultery with Bathsheba in 2 Samuel chapter 11, 2 Samuel chapter 12, Nathan, the prophet, who is kind of David's right hand man, he comes to him and he says, Hey, I got a parable for you. Knocks on his door. I want to talk to you. He says, You know, there's this man in the kingdom and he's just well off. He's wealthy. He's got everything he could ever desire. He has servants and he has maids and he has property and he has food and he has wine. He has everything he could desire, great flocks, great herds. But next door, there's this really poor guy. He's got this one little lamb. He loves this little lamb. He feeds it. He takes care of it. He sleeps with it. He, he loves it. And you know what happened? The guy that's got everything, he sends some of his servants over, and he says, hey, I want your little loving lamb. And he takes it from him. He takes it home, and the guy that's got everything, he says, oh, man, nice veal here. I think what I'm going to do is I'm just going to cook it up and barbecue it for my guests that are coming over. And Nathan looks at David. He goes, what do you think about that? What do you think about a guy that would do that? And David goes, kill him. We're going to deal with him. Wow. David got really angry. He judged the man. He condemned him. And he said, we're going to put him, I'd put him to death. <laughs> Imagine Nathan, you know what he does? He looks at him and he goes, you the man. <laughs> because he, because of the, the splinter or the beam that was in David's eye, he couldn't see it for what it was. I mean, change the situation just a little bit. Here's David. He's got hundreds of wives. He's ruling the king over, he's the ruling king over Israel. And next door to him is a man, one of his soldiers named Uriah, whose wife is Bathsheba and she's a babe. And he sees her one night when he should have been out fighting with his men. He sees her and what does he do? He sends his servants to go get her and to bring them to him. They have relationship. She gets pregnant. To cover it up, David brings in her husband, Uriah, to kill him. Well, all of a sudden, Nathan confronts him with this story. And he says, David, that's you. But he couldn't even see it. Isn't it true that we kind of come down hardest on everybody else? Than we do ourselves. We're so ready to condemn others for doing those things that basically we can be guilty of doing ourselves. It's always surprising and interesting to me how horrible my sin looks when someone else is committing them. Right? Yeah, thank you, the one or two of you that agree. <laughs> See, they just, they don't look quite that bad when I do it. I always have this way of seeing myself through these rose-colored glasses. And man, I, I, I don't look all that bad, do I? <laughs> Here's what Jesus is saying, loved ones. Worry less about this and deal with this. Take care of your stuff. Last thing is Christ's followers were to be brothers and sisters. Jesus says, first take the beam of wood out of your eye and then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. Jesus does give us permission here to help others, to speak into other people's lives. It's really a Christian responsibility to care enough to confront, to love enough to risk but to care and love enough to do it in the right way. How do we know when we're not being judgmental? Well, I, here's kind of my criteria. Do we use our knowledge to build up to love, not for ourselves? First Corinthians 8, 1 Corinthians 8.1 says this, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The Pharisees and the religious leaders had knowledge. They knew the laws and the commandments, but they lacked love and they lacked mercy. And they stiff-armed the rank and file of the people and built themselves up. Jesus calls them out, you lack love and mercy because it was all about them, not the other person. It was all about how they looked, how they were seen. Can I just tell you something? The more you learn, the more you understand the Bible, the more you embrace the scriptures, the more doctrine you can learn, the more truth you can take in, you will, one of two things will happen. I guarantee it. You will become more loving because you'll see yourself as you are. Ephesians chapter five talks about how God cleanses us and washes us through the washing of the word. And as you read it, you'll begin to say, I am still a sinner in need of a savior. You'll either become more loving or you'll become more lethal. What do you mean? You'll kill people. You will unsheath this sword, and you will use it as a weapon on people. That's why Paul says, knowledge puffs up. Because pretty soon I've got this knowledge and I'm right and you're wrong. And you begin to lose any sense of the love of Christ. See, that's what I love about Jesus. It says the common people heard him gladly. He was the first rabbi that could understood. He was the first rabbi that didn't confuse them and try and tell them how bad they were because Jesus used his words and his teachings to lift people up. He didn't back off from sin. He didn't back off from right and wrong, good and bad, but he did it in a way that built people up. You're going to decide, loved ones, whether you become more loving or more lethal. Second thing that I really want to do is I want to always restore and help lift up, not put down and condemn. That's what Jesus says. Don't judge. Don't get in people's face and condemn them. Let's go back to Galatians 6.1. Brothers and sisters, if someone has overtaken any wrongdoing, any sin, you who are spiritual. That doesn't mean that you're up here. It just simply means that you are a person filled with God's spirit and doing all you can to walk with him, love him, hear from him, and do what he's calling you to do and to become. He says... Restore such a person with the gentle spirit, watching out for yourself so that you won't be tempted. You don't go out, you don't go into this thing being haughty and think, oh, I could never do that. Oh, you loser. But you go in there with a sense of sobriety and say, I love you enough that I'm going to confront you and I know my own stuff. You come like Jesus with grace, with truth, and a desire to restore and move people back to Jesus and do for them what Jesus does for you. So Jesus is really saying here, don't condemn. Be discriminating. Understand evil, understand sin, understand right, understand wrong. But condemnation is something that God has reserved for himself. He is the final judge. Leave it. In God's hands, and know when you're to build up, speak into, challenge, but always do it to restore, not to win an argument, not to put people in their place. Amen. Does that make sense to you? And and it cuts across. Just we're not just talking about spiritual things here, loved ones. We're talking about our culture. We are the ones that represent and live out Jesus' heart and attitude and spirit everywhere we go, every day, in every way. Let's stand. Would you just take a moment there and just kind of do a little uh, spiritual inventory and say, Lord, are there areas that I need to just consider, look at, be aware of? Would, Would you want to just kind of search me and know me today if there's any hurtful way where I've become more concerned about how I look or I see things in people that really bother me and man, when I really think about it oh man, that bothers me about me. Or maybe there's certain people or certain things that you've just become so callous to that you can't even respond to them without anger and condemnation. You just want to judge them and tell them where to get off and where they're wrong. And I'm not talking about sin. I'm not talking about these kinds of things. But you know what? Even, even sin, you can become so right that you're wrong in how you deal with people. Does it have the spirit of Jesus? Would you just take a moment and think and consider for yourself? Lord, we have seen this culture grow across the board. Businesses and politics and ethnicities and churches. If we don't like you, we're just going to cancel you. I, I don't see you doing that anywhere in the scriptures, Lord. I don't see you canceling people. I see you confronting, I see you calling, I see you caring, I see you compassionately going after. I even see you challenging the ones that gave you the worst time, the religious leaders, but you don't cancel them. Lord, would you teach us as Christ followers, would you teach us as a church that we're to be discerning and make judgments, but God, would you begin to extricate and Removed by the power of your spirit, all judgmentalism out of our life, the need to always be right. That person inside of us that has to prove our way and that they're wrong and I'm right. Would you teach us, Lord, how to engage people in love and truth and grace? Lord, I thank you so much for your word and I pray that this place would be a place where it's doctrinally sound. It's lovingly correct, but not lethal, except to extricate and cut out those things in our lives that need to be removed. But I thank you for this church that Lord, we're trying, we're working to, to grow, to become more like you. Lord, that's our calling and that's what we're going to do. So I pray that over this church today. And if you're here today or you're online and you've never responded to Jesus Christ I invite you to do that today online you can simply click on the hand and say Jesus I I don't understand all this but I want to follow you maybe you're in this room and you've never made that step to say I'm going to follow Jesus here's the truth he's the one that condemns in the end he will condemn you but we have the ability to step in to the freedom of relationship with Him and forgiveness of sins and wrong today. And if that's you, just raise your hand and just say, Yeah, PT, that's me. I want to I want to make sure that I'm moving into a loving relationship with Jesus, not a religion. And online that you would say the same thing. I want to. Relationship. I see your hand, friend. Yeah, thank you, Lord. Anybody else say today? P.T. That's me. And if you're online, just click the hand on there and meet somebody in the prayer room. Anybody else today? Father, we come. It's not by mind, it's not by power, but it's by Your Spirit that You work and move in people's lives. Help us, Lord to be like you, Jesus. John 3, 16 said, for God so loved the world that he came to give his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And then John 17 says, you didn't come to condemn this world, but to save it. And Lord, help us to live out that mission every day and every way. In your name we pray. Amen.